Fed only knows one thing, you know, well, it will work for Paul Walker, maybe it'll work for me. So we'll hike rates. What the, when the Fed raises rates, what they're mechanically doing is that they're imposing losses on your portfolio, on parts of your portfolio. I don't think you can just make a just a blanket statement as to where the power put is, except that it's low, lower, much lower than it is today. Once again, I have the pleasure of being joined by Joseph Wang, aka Fed Guy. Joseph, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jack. It's a real pleasure to be here. I love your show. Yeah, well, the, the love is mutual, Joseph. You are my first uh, repeat guest. Honored. <laughs> so uh, for those of you who don't know, Joseph is a former senior Fed trader. He was trading uh, from the New York uh, Opens Markets desk. So when people think about quantitative easing, people think about you know the purchases and, and, and growth by trillions of dollars of the Fed's balance sheet. That is where all of the options happen. Joseph was at the desk, capital D. Joseph, last time we spoke, the rates market was in the process of flattening, some yield curve flattening. Uh, bond traders were pricing in rate hikes on the short end, so short-term rates were rising, but long-term bond yields were falling as people were maybe a little bit worried about, is inflation going to slow? Is growth going to slow? Is the Fed going to uh, um, uh, hike into a recession, so to speak? However, starting the new year, now today we're recording on January 12th, which is the day that the uh, CPI came out, 7% year-over-year inflation, and it's the day after uh, Powell's testimony to Congress. since the new year, Joseph, we've had an epic reversal where rates have been repricing higher on the short end, but on the long end, rates have been rising as well. So it seems like there's some inflation fears as, as well. Just you know, Can you walk us through how you've been seeing the past uh, month, both from what you've been seeing from the Fed as well as what market participants in the rates markets, the, the, the rates futures markets and bonds? Yeah, so I think you set it up perfectly there. So when you think about rates, there's kind of, you can think about the front end let's, or front to belly, let's say um, up to five years, that's largely controlled by the Fed. And then you can think about the longer end, say 10, 20, 30, that's a lot more to do with the market. Now, these two things, these two markets, they 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 behave, as, well, there's, a, there's some differences in how they behave. The, um, from the front end to the belly, that's really all about what the Fed would do. And the mechanics of how this happens is that, so the Fed has very strong control over the overnight rate, right? So um, the Fed has this facility, it's called the reverse repo facility. And what that does is that it offers a lot of market participants the opportunity to lend to the Fed at an overnight rate set by the Fed. So it's basically a risk-free investment. Uh, Today, it's five basis points, right? Fed has a lot of control over the overnight rate. And if the Fed can control the overnight rate really, really well, though, it can kind of extend that control, let's say throughout the two to five year, by telling you how it's going to keep the overnight rate for the coming years. So, for example, if you were, if you were trying to price a two year or a three year, right? So how would you price that? Well, your opportunity cost, of course, would be whether or not you were, you would roll your investment overnight in the Fed every day for two years. So you can kind of think about that as the expected path of policy. Now, over the past few, over the past month, there's been a very, a very hawkish shift in the Fed and in, into what their projected path of policy is. And that's leading to a lot of the repricing in, in the front end of the curve. So I, in order to think about this, I would think about, say, um, you know, 
rather than saying why is the Fed so hawkish, I would I would actually frame it as why was the Fed so dovish when inflation is as you mentioned, it's like exploding higher, right? So they have, you know, let's say a two per, two percent inflation target, um, and inflation is like six seven percent. So why are rates at zero? It doesn't make any sense. And the reason they've been so dovish so far, though, until let's say a few weeks ago, is that they have two mandates. One, it's um, you know, inflation. The other is also full employment. And at times, these two these two goals are in conflict. So let's say right now we have inflation because of a huge, huge demand shock, right? Fed, uh, the federal government printed a whole bunch of money, spent it, gave it to people, and so that's creating enormous demand. Now. The way that, and of course, there are some supply constraints, let's say you know, chip shortage and so forth. So the way that the Fed would have to do to, to stop this inflation, it would be by destroying demand. In a way, it's basically destroying jobs, reducing uh, output, so forth. The way that it would destroy demand would be by be by hiking rates, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and how would hiking rates destroy demand? Uh, well, according to their textbook theory, you would just you know slow down uh, investment and so forth. Let's say you were going to build a factory. Now rates are higher. Maybe you won't do that. Now, I don't really know if that's how it works, but that's how they view it. Yeah. Now, and it just, if I just can go through the logic that I learned in, in my textbook, it's that the the overnight rate, the, the rate that the Fed sets is the risk-free rate. So if the risk-free rate is low, you get nothing by taking risk-free. So you're going to take risk. But if if the risk-free rate is higher, you're saying, hey, 2%, I was going to lend money to this uh, company to build a factory, but now that I get 2%, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not. Like at 0%, I would have lent to the factory because you know there's opportunity cost and 0% is, is nothing. But at 2%, I'm parking my money with the Fed. So that's the theory, Joseph. What about in actual practice? Does, does raising rates destroy demand? It really depends on a lot of things. So I'm hesitant about saying that today. The reason being that you know, people aren't really cash, companies aren't really cash constrained. They have enormous amounts of uh, cash in their bank accounts and you know, they, they have, they can raise cheap debt really easily. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical as to whether or not uh, raising interest rates has that much of effect on their investment decisions or on uh, the, the purchasing decisions of consumers, right? So even if let's say they raise interest rates a bit, okay, maybe I, park some money at the Fed rather than go buy something. But I don't know if let's say 1%, 2%, 3% at all matters that much. But let's say in theory that it does. Okay, let's say it does, as the Fed thinks, then you're destroying, you're raising unemployment. Um, that's not good because um, at this time right now, you have about 3 million people fewer in the labor force than pre-COVID. So that's where the dilemma comes in. You have high inflation, but you also have quote from the Fed's point of view, um, you're not at full employment. So that's really why they weren't they weren't raising rates so far. But the revolution comes as the Fed is beginning to see that, you know what? So maybe we have three million fewer people in the labor force compared to pre-COVID. But that's one indicator, but our under other indicators seem to suggest a very, very strong labor market. And and I can I can say from my personal experience just walking through the city there's a lot of people, there's a lot of stores with help wanted signs, wages are going higher. And so there, there could be dynamics in the labor market that, that have changed since COVID such that we are actually much closer to full employment than the Fed thinks. And if you listen to Jay Powell's testimony yesterday, he basically said we are at or close to full employment. Now that fundamentally changes everything because 
on the one hand, you have high inflation. On the other hand, you have full employment. That means everything is go for a rate hike. And that's what they're trying to telegraph now. So the way that the Fed does things is that it absolutely does not want to surprise the markets. In the past, maybe Greenspan would have done stuff like that, but the, the modern Fed doesn't do that. It's kind of afraid of volatility. So what happens is that before they do anything, they go out and they talk it up. They try to tell the markets what they're going to do. I mean, they're not going to say, hey guys, I'm going to hike rates in March and then June and so forth. So you price accordingly, but they hint it. And the market understands that. And so you see that repricing going through, um, going through into the, uh, the, let's say the front end of the curve. Now you also asked about, let's say the longer term rates. And that's a bit different because, you know, what is the path of policy 10, 20 years from now? You know, nobody really knows. So that's a lot of it has to do with other structural um, impacts. So, um, for example, one of the things that Jay Powell likes to talk about is, hey, you have all these people, let's say pension funds in Japan, in Europe, they have negative rates. For them, you know, coming to the US, even on an FX hedge basis, buying a 10, 30-year treasury, it's a really good deal. So it's not high, but it's not negative. So you have these structural forces that that kind of determine structural supply and demand forces that kind of determine what happens in a longer data segment that is that becomes more more important than fed policy because it's hard to know what the fed policy would be in the in the future so i think of these structural supply and demand forces being more important for for longer data treasuries just um uh just speaking to that something else that the fed is doing is that they're rolling out uh, quantitative tightening um <laughs> at, if you listen to uh, President Bostick, he was saying, I'm going to do at least 100 billion a month. And so just for just to refresh everyone, the max that we ever did last time around was about 50 billion. And we started out, let's say, 6 billion in treasuries. So it's it's kind of increasing the pace to a comical level. Now, I don't know if he's trying to scare the market or even if he knows what he's talking about, but I think that has some impact as to how people perceive the supply of treasuries, of longer dated treasuries. So let's, let's call them coupons um, in the coming year. And if if the Fed is doing QT at a massive pace, what that really does is that increases the supply of treasury debt to the, to the private sector. And the market is going to have to absorb that. Um, it's not clear to me that there's really enough buying power to do that in an orderly way. So you can kind of see that people um, I think price that in a little bit. Let, let's stick on the short end of the curve. So yeah, as you said, uh, yesterday on the 11th of January, Powell to the Senate Banking Committee, he, he said quite clearly, if we have to raise interest rates more over time, we will. We will use our tools to get inflation back. Uh, it's an exact quote. And he said, yeah, to get the kind of very strong labor market we want with high participation, it's going to take a long expansion. And for a long expansion, we need price stability. So high inflation is a severe threat to the achievement of maximum employment. So it's, it's like a year ago, they wanted to see inflation because inflation was uh, uh, compatible with maximum employment. Now that inflation is so high, it's, it's incompatible with maximum employment. And as such, uh, Joseph, as you alluded to, we've seen a huge repricing on the short end of the curve. Just looking at the at the CME implied uh, futures rate a month ago, December tenth, about a week before we filmed our first interview, the percentage the, the percentage chance the market was assigning that the Fed wouldn't raise rates in March was sixty four percent, 
and the, the chance that it would hike uh, from 25 to 50 basis points was 33%. Now, 0 to 25 is a 21% probability, and there's a 74% probability that the Federal Reserve will hike in March. And it goes out in, in July, in September, in, in December. Um, how uh, you know, the market is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, pricing about four rate hikes in total. Do you think that that is too high, too low? And by two, the word two, it's not a judgmental phrase. It's just a phrase about the, what do you think is going to happen in, in terms of probability? And also, you know, what do you think about the argument? There's some people who just scoff. They say four rate hikes. That's impossible. That, that is impossible. Uh, is, the, is four rate hikes impossible? So there, there's two. I think there's two questions here. One is what will the Fed will do, and two is whether or not the markets can handle it. So I think when it comes to your first question here, whether or not the Fed will hike for, for rate hikes, I think that's actually in the cards right now. And I'll, I'll give you some insight as to how this works. So the Fed, so as I mentioned before, it has strong control over overnight rates, and it extends that control throughout the short-term curve by communicating what its path would be, and that gets priced into the market. So the Fed watches the short-term interest rate futures very closely, and it, it does it does this in a lot of ways. It, you know, it has all the Bloomberg data that that we have, um, but it also conducts surveys to market participants. So it will send out surveys to hedge funds, investment managers, banks, and so forth, and ask, so how many times do you think that uh, you know we're, we're going to hike? What do you think is in the market? So it tries to create like a distribution as to potential outcomes to, to get a better sense of just what exactly is in the price. So as you mentioned, let's say we have four hikes fully priced into, into the, um, in the euro dollar futures. Well, that could be four hikes, but it could be just somebody at, you know, at, at the very, very pricing in um, tail, tail risk of a lot of uh, six or seven hikes. So it's hard to know what exactly is in that price. Is that the median expectation or is it just being pushed upwards by um, uh, bets to the upside? So the Fed does all this work to try to figure out what's in the market. And if the market is pricing something that they don't, uh, they don't want to communicate or if the market is basically getting it wrong, they'll do something about it. So um, in the past, you can see many examples. Let's say the Fed market didn't think the Fed will hike. Okay, so Team Fed goes out, conducts a media blitz, and tells people that, hey, hey, you know what? Maybe rates are too low. We, we might hike next time. And the market prices it. And the same thing is happening now. So Team Fed is fanning out, communicating to the media, giving speeches, letting the market understand. We are going to be a bit more aggressive than, than you thought we were earlier. So this short-term interest rate uh, management, expectations management is very much part of their playbook. So. Um, if the market is pricing this, that's what they want the market to think. So I think you are right that um, they're, they're, they're probably going to do four rate hikes. Now, the other argument is, can the market handle this? And I don't think that the market can. So I've spoken to you about this before, but the Fed perceives its tool as a tool of the price of money, so controlling interest rates. But there's another, another way to think of this as well, and that's the Fed controls the quantity of certain types of money, and that is the asset value of treasuries. Now, let's say you have a portfolio full of short-term, short-to-medium-dated treasuries. When the Fed is communicating that we're going to hike, yes, rates go higher, but that translates into quantities as well. That means if you have, let's say, $100,000 worth of two-year notes, well, that's worth less now. It's not $100,000 anymore. So there's this 
there's these two, these two impacts. There's price and there's quantities. That never thinks about quantities. It's really not in their models. But from an investment standpoint, it's very real. Let's say you're a portfolio manager. You hold equities. You hold bonds. What the, when the Fed raises rates, what they're mechanically doing is that they're imposing losses on your portfolio, on parts of your portfolio. And so how the system handles that really depends on where those losses are distributed. So it's really hard to know. Um, so first, the magnitude of the losses, right, has to do with how large the debt market is, and it's enormous. So if you were think, if you're thinking like, say, the Fed did Fed funds rates to 20% in the 1980s, I can do it again now. Well, the debt market was much smaller back then. The debt market's huge today. So when you hike rates just a little bit, the losses that you are creating are very large. And you really don't know where they are. If they're all into, into uh, you know, all cash investor, investors, that's fine. You know what? They can handle it. But that's not really where all the losses lie. Sometimes they are in very highly levered funds. So what happens if you are a highly levered fund and you're losing money on your bonds? Then you have to sell your stocks to rebalance because yeah, portfolio management and so forth. Well, then that that means that uh, people who hold stocks they are losing money and maybe they sell. So you have uh, you have a dynamic that is that can be potentially become unstable. And in my personal view, that's what happened in quarter four two thousand and eighteen. Uh, back then, the Fed was basically intent on hiking. The market was pricing that, but it could not handle it. You can see risk assets basically melt throughout, the, let's say, November and December of 2018. So there's a good chance that that could happen again in the coming months. And Joseph, what did the dynamics look like in 2018? I, I think you were working at the, the Fed at that time. Now we have a dynamic where Fed funds futures are pricing in the hawkishness that the federal, the Fed is communicating. However, it seems like in terms of the narrative, if you say the mainstream position, which should be that for rate hikes, you're seen as you know something that that's very, that, that that is unlikely. It, it seems like it's uh, there's su such doubt because the Federal Reserve has been unable to hike in the past or reluctant to hike, as in 2018. In 2018. Uh, what did what did the did the Federal Reserve uh, did, excuse me did the Fed funds futures did the euro dollar market did the rates futures market did it take the Fed at its word when they had these extremely hawkish dot plots or uh, was it a, is it a non believer because now it seems like the Fed fund futures the euro dollars is a believer but the the people who are owning stocks at least on, on Twitter and, and people who go on TV are not yeah so you raised two really good points so the market doesn't always believe the Fed and there the second point you raised that is really good is that each market has different market participants that have different perceptions of the world and probably different levels of sophistication. So the short-term interest rate market, people are, are you know very sophisticated and they're good at guessing what the Fed would do. Back in 2018, um, they were they were so at that point, uh, Fed effective was uh, I think about close to two and a half percent, and the Fed was telling you that they would hike rates more. Uh, the market didn't really believe them. Okay, fine. They don't always believe the Fed, um, but in the December FOMC dot plot in 2018, the, the Fed basically reiterated their position that we're going to hike rates in 2019. And I think at that point, the short-term interest rate market was like, fine, if that's what you want. And so they, they actually began to price a little bit of that inside, and then the market just couldn't handle it, and they reversed very promptly in January. So. Um, right now, the short-term interest rate market 
you know, is um, pricing in, I think, a terminal rate that's close to what the Fed is. And again, the Fed is massaging the, the pace of the hate rate hikes forward. So um, that's to me that 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 is according to their plan. But if I have one thing to note is that it, it's possible that the terminal rate that the Fed is planning is higher than 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 what they iterated in the past. So in the past, there let's say terminal rate, let's say two and a half percent. I don't remember it's something around there, but that's based on the assumption that inflation is just going to dissipate very quickly. So going forward, if inflation is not going to dissipate very quickly, so which basically it doesn't seem like it will, and their projections have been very wrong for for a number of months, then they might have to change that a little bit. So um, that presents some dangers to the risk assets because then you know you have a higher hiking cycle. Right now, you know, we were not be able to handle two and a half back then. I would say think that we would our threshold, the market's threshold for pain is is going to be lower than back then because we have more debt. And so the impact of every rate hike becomes stronger. Now, your second point about how some people don't believe that the Fed can hike rates. Maybe I've even heard people say that they can just hike one and done. Yeah, I, I really think that's just kind of a disconnect between um, market participants. So again, people who trade in these short-term interest rate markets have a very good understanding of the Fed. People who trade equity markets probably don't. Um, I mean, if you're buying a lot of these MEM stocks, you probably are, are not uh, in tune to what the Fed does. And it might be your first you know, cycle. So I think they're going to be very, very surprised. Um, the Fed you know, doesn't like risk assets to go down. That's completely true. But there's a reason for that, though. Uh, the reason since the GFC was because when the Fed was at the zero lower bound and it wanted to push inflation up, it felt that one of the ways that it could do this was blowing an asset bubble. Why does blowing an asset bubble work? Because when you blow an asset bubble, you're basically giving more money to people to spend and invest. And that boosts growth, that boosts inflation. So the Fed, you know, just can't give everyone free stimmy checks, right? But if you, let's say, lower interest rates low, do quantitative easing, the portfolios of people, they go higher. There is a wealth effect, as Bernanke would say. And maybe you go and you buy a house, maybe you buy a car. That's similar to the economy. Fast forward to today, we have an economy that's, you know, by all accounts, fairly strong and inflation very high. We're in a very, very different context. We don't need a wealth effect. In fact, we have too much of it. In my view, I think a policy goal would be to deflate risk assets. Yeah, let's dig into that. Earlier, you alluded to the market's threshold for pain, investors' threshold for, for, for pain. But what about the Fed's threshold for pain? In December 2018, we saw that the Fed couldn't take whatever the max drawdown was, 20 25% in the S&P 500. That was enough to cause the first Powell pivot and for uh, Powell to stop uh, raising rates and uh, go back to quantitative easing, go back to easy money policy. Is it different this time? Can Fed Chair Powell and, and the uh, senior folks at the Fed, do they have a, are they made of stronger stuff now? Because valuations are so high, you know, a 25% correction, and we'd still be well, well above pre-COVID valuation. So do you think that there could be a, a greater threshold for pain in terms of, in terms of t t uh, drawdowns and risk assets? Absolutely. I, I agree with you completely. I was on the desk back then, and so what the desk does is that we are basically the uh, market intelligence source for, for, the, for the Fed, right? So 
I get sense back then that they were actually quite scared about what's happening. You know, the stock market goes down every day. What can we do to stop this? They, they were scared. Today is very different. Now, if you look at, so the way that you would understand how the Fed perceives asset valuations is to look at their financial stability report. The one in November, you know, says that they think assets are overvalued. Now, Fed is always subtle. They're trying, trying to tell you that this stuff is crazy. <laughs> so they would, so the Fed put, so to speak, the strike price is going to be much, much lower than where we are today. Um, the, the fear is that, you know, you, you don't really get a clean 20% correction. There's some non-linearity to this because of leverage. You can go down 20% and then afterwards you lose control and things could go down very poorly. But at this point, you know, I have no problem. I, I feel like they would be fine with a 20% correction or something like that. So I, I don't think that's really a concern. The concern to them right now is that asset prices are elevated. Yeah, really good point about the non-linearity. If you have a linear distribution, if something goes down 20%, so it's sort of 20% to the, to the left of the distribution, the odds that it will continue to go to the further point of extreme decrease. But in real life, if something decreases 20%, the odds that it will decrease another 20% are actually greater because these things compound and we, and we have um, fat left tails. Joseph, I don't want to press you too hard, but could you give us a little bit more color on when you say the Fed has a greater uh, threshold for, for pain what are we talking? So it can handle 20%. What about 30%? What about 35%? What about, you know, entire sectors, entire investing styles, like uh, hyper growth investing styles? You know, if, if those types of ETFs are down 70, 75, 80%, SPACs are down 90%. Is, is the Fed going to feel an inch of, rem uh, of a, a pang of remorse and say, hey, actually, let's, let's put our, our foot back on the gas or, or no? Are they steely eyed? In my my in my impression is that when the Fed looks at the market, it's really focused more on the large in indexes like the S and P, the Dow, these corners of the market like the SPAC, and things like that. That that's just not that important to them. Mm. So they care about markets in in the sense for financial stability concerns. Um, that's just so much so a very small part of the market. It's not a it's not a big deal. Um, I just I don't know where the Powell put is right now, but I I didn't. It's, it, it's not something I don't think they know either. It's something that uh, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. So it's not just equity prices, but you can have, you have to look at, let's say, credit or rates, volatility, things like that. So it, it's, you can't, I don't think you can just make a, just a blanket statement as to where the power put is, except that it, it's low, lower, much lower than it is today, where, where the S&P is today. You're saying that's on a broad level in terms of the S&P 500, let's say. You said you know they don't care about, about SPACs. They don't really care about rotation. If the S&P 500 were to stay at 4,700, but it were to, to flow out of technology stocks and all into industrial and cyclical stocks, they, they wouldn't bat an eye, right? It's, it's you know, that, that's, the, that's the way it works, right? Yeah, no. So, I mean, equity prices are not a mandate, but financial stability is. So um, these small corners of the, of the market are just not that important. What's important would be things that you know could damage the financial system as a whole. So, things like uh, let's say, for example, disorder in the treasury market. Now that threatens financial stability. Um, let's say disorders in the debt market, possibly as well, because it's not as liquid. And equity market, I would focus on the larger indexes, but SPACs, things like that. That's just not something they think about. Got it. I've got a little bit of a tough question for you, which is, if you were Jay Powell, if you were in Jerome Powell's shoes, if you were the chair of the Federal Reserve. At this juncture, what would you do? 
Well, I'd be in a lot of trouble if I was Jay Powell because, oh my gosh, inflation is running at 6%. And my gosh, rates are at zero. Not just rates are at zero. I'm still doing QE. So what am I doing, right? I'm really screwing up big time. And, you know, I go on the news. All these politicians are just complaining, you know, inflation is high. They'll do something, do something. So that in my mind is, is, is probably going to spur the Fed to be more hawkish than they expect. But listen, Fed does things very slowly. So they've been gradually tuning up the hawkish language. Uh, that doesn't mean that they, they're going to stop doing this. It, it just might be to prepare the markets for, for more. So when Boston goes and says, we're going to do $100 billion in QE, and QT, sorry, in QT, it just might be that he's trying to message expectations in the markets. Maybe he reads people saying, yeah, so the Fed never hike. And you know what? Maybe they'll do like $20 billion in Q, QT. Maybe he gets information like this and he wants to help reset expectations. So again, a lot of Fed policy is shaping the expectations of the market. So quantitative easing is the growth is the growth of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, uh, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, stuff like that. Right now, we're slowing quantitative easing, also known as tapering, but we're not reducing it. When it's being reduced, that's QT, uh, uh, quantitative tightening. And when the Fed reduces its balance sheet via QT, it just lets the bonds that it owns expire, because all bonds have a maturity, and then not buy more to replace them. You noted in your most recent post uh, at fedguy.com that... There's a limit. There's no, the Fed can do unlimited QE essentially, and we saw that you know the Fed's balance sheet balloon in March of 2020, April of 2020. But there is a limit to how much it can do quantitative tightening because there's only so much uh, paper that expires. Is there enough bonds? Are there enough bonds on the Fed's balance sheet for the the Fed to do 100 billion dollars of of tapering or excuse me of tightening? Uh, or is this is that unrealistic? The the matured structure of the Fed it's, it's lumpy. So um, I. I think um, I think there's someone. I think Nick from the Wall Street Journal did a, a great back of the envelope calculation from this on Twitter. So he shows that you know the, the maturities are lumpy. Lumpy for the most part, we won't get above a hundred billion dollars a month in redemptions. Sometimes we will. So so in theory, there's there's not enough to go at the fast pace that they want. But the second thing the Fed could do is they could do outright sales, which they have not done in in some time which I think would be very, very hawkish. So um, I, I'm, I don't think they would do that. So I'm inclined to think that maybe they would just set, let's say, let's say 80 a month. And if it doesn't reach that, if let's say only 60 billion in, in redemptions uh, happened, 20 below the 80 billion cap, then, you know, that's fine too. We just, we, we just won't do the full 80 billion. So that's another way they can do this. So they can either just set a cap and not meet it every month or they could do outright sales, which um, I, I think it's not something they've done for some time. And back in 2017, about I think we did taper first, then tightening of the balance sheet, then quantitative tightening, and then rate hikes. Whereas now the outlook looks like taper first, and then rate hikes, and then maybe later uh, uh, tightening. But typically, the, the Fed doesn't do QT and raising hikes at the same time, right? That's that's a little bit over in overdrive. The stated sequence that they've said is that we're going to do one rate hike, and then afterwards we could open the possibility of QT. And if Fowell was saying yesterday that you know we would start, we might start QT this year. What he's really saying is we're going to start QT this year. Right? That's how they communicate. <laughs> so chair of the Federal Reserve knows that he moves markets. He's not just going to go going to go casually be like, yeah, maybe we'll do this. You know, maybe means yes. So that's what it, that's the plan at the moment. 
Got a, got a question, which is earlier you said when the Fed when the, when the Fed said valuations are a little bit stretched, it's a little bit overvalued. That's their way of saying we think that it's too overvalued and there's a little bit of a bubble. As, in yes. the same way, you just said uh, might do this is the same say, but we will do this. Yes, we pl- we plan on doing this. We plan on doing this. Anything else that when a reasonably educated person hears a central banker, a, a Fed person say something, they think it means one thing. But actually, if you're in the know and you speak Fed speak, it, it, it means an uh, entirely different thing. Um, so I, I think the Fed has made great strides in its communication. Now, back in, let's say, the Greenspan days, he really didn't really know what he was talking about. Fed tries really hard to be transparent these days. And the way that you can see this is, you know, they have press conferences now, right? Back then, they didn't have press conferences. Jay Powell was taking questions. Jay Powell was uh, trying to manage the short-term interest rate markets so that they won't be surprised. He's willing to tell you that, you know what, maybe QT this year. So I, I think they're pretty transparent this, today. You just have to realize that they're subtle in what they, what they, what they say. Uh, they're not going to go out and tell you that I think the S&P is too expensive. <laughs> That's not what they say. But they'll be like, yeah, maybe valuations are high. Mm. Is there anything that Powell said yesterday that really struck you that someone like me, not, not versus since Fed speak, it really would, you know, I wouldn't bat an eye on it, but you said, hmm. They, this is this is this is important. I think that the, the comment that we are at or close to full employment that is very very important, and that tells you that um, that opens up the possibility of a March track to me. And then, what will the Federal Reserve be looking at after the March hike or after the hike, the first hike occurs? Will if 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 things are smooth sailing as they are now, w- you know, is it very likely that they will proceed with another rate hike? How bad do, do things have to be? Do the, does the signal for them to for them to stop in their tracks? You know, if you are pricing in, if the market's pricing in four rate hikes, it, presumably they, they've they've got to do them sometime after March, right, before December. So the way that markets work is once it's priced in, it already exists. The Fed doesn't have to do anything. So if you're pricing in four rate hikes, then you go to in your let's say you're a borrower and you go to the market, though those rates are already there. It's already in the market already. So that's that's done. So. Um, if the Fed were to not carry out those four rate hikes, then let's say then the market would adjust and basically they would, the market will cut rates for the Fed. So if the market so far has seems to be able to handle four hikes, um, part of that could be because there are people in the equity market who don't believe them. That's fine. Um, but if that's the if that's what they're communicating and there's no pushback, Chirpel has a lot of opportunity to push back. It's just the start of the year. He did not push back yesterday. He has many opportunities to push back the coming press conferences, then that that would be my baseline case. So, and the Fed has a lot of control over market expectations. They watch that closely, and if they're comfortable with that, then they're comfortable with doing that. After the first rate hike, I would expect um, QT to probably begin maybe in June or September. Um, again, it's going to depend on whether or not inflation receipts like their models are praying for or if it just uh, remains high and how effective do you think rate hikes will be in fighting inflation setting aside you, you have your own theory about about inflationary hikes which maybe we can revisit but but also you know if the if the deflationists are right and the real reason we have inflation is not because of any monetary phenomena but because uh, uh, there's just not aren't enough ships in the world, uh, and you know oil companies aren't, aren't drilling as much because of ESG and other reasons. In other words, that it's supply driven. If deflations are right, that inflation is mostly driven by supply side issues and supply chains, 
then is, is hiking rates to 1%, 2% really going to stop inflation in its tracks, like hiking rates in, in 81 uh, did, you know, epically in the case of Paul Volcker? So I don't think rate hikes would be super. So you know, from, from my perspective, rate hikes have a much, much stronger effect on the financial economy than they do have on the real economy. So these are two separate things. So like I alluded to earlier, it's hard for me to imagine a circumstance with, where, let's say, even if the Fed were to raise rates to 2 or 3%, that a company would change their investment decisions because that's, that's only one aspect of what drives what they do is the price of money. The other is things like demand, technology, um, regulatory costs, and so forth. I mean, if I told you that, you know, rates instead of 1%, you can borrow 2%, I mean, would that really change your business plans? That's, it, it's, it's a small factor that it's an increasingly small factor uh, because they're already so low on an absolute and historic level. So I'm skeptical that that does anything. And I think bigger picture though, in my pers- from my perspective, what really drives inflation these days is the fiscal spending. Because when the, when the government is spending money that it doesn't have, in the past, what it would do was raise taxes, right? So it would take money from someone to spend to someone else. But what's been happening for the past decade is it just does deficit spending. So it issues treasuries, or you can think about treasuries as a form of money. Treasuries are issued by the US government, super liquid, super safe, accepted throughout the world. So it basically prints money when it spends when it does deficit spending. And it's been doing that at an increasingly large pace. Over the past year or two, it was $3.5 trillion deficit. Going forward, you have a lot of spending on the books that won't change. Deficit will be at least a trillion dollars every year for the foreseeable future. And if you raise rates, interest on that deficit goes higher, and that means more money is printed, right? That's the inflationary one aspect of the inflationary hikes. If the world's largest borrower um, has to pay higher interest, then they're just going to print more money to pay that interest, right? So you have this doom loop dynamic here. So I'm skeptical that inflation, that rate hikes would solve real economy inflation. To the extent that it's a supply chain thing, as you mentioned, it's not really going to do anything. But rate hikes do have a very strong impact on the financial economy. If you hike rates and you crash the market, that's going to have some effect on inflation because in a sense, you're not as wealthy as you were before. Maybe you were like, you know, you load into like a fortune in Tesla. You're going to buy a new house. Now maybe you have to buy a shack. So, okay, that has an impact. But if you look at the distribution of financial assets in, in the country, they are held by, you know, let's say the top 10%, right? So when you compress the value of financial assets, you're impacting the wealthy a lot more than you're impacting everyone else. And the wealthy weren't spending their money to begin with. People who are lower income, they don't have a lot of financial assets, but they buy lots of stuff. People who are wealthier, um, they don't buy lots of stuff. So you make them a little bit poor, but that doesn't mean they're going to spend less money because they weren't spending that much money to begin with. If you are a billionaire, there's only so many houses you can buy. So um, I think it has an effect on sentiment. I, I think that um, over the medium term, I think that it will not help inflation. Joseph, we've got a lot of questions from, I did a poll on Twitter saying, uh, I'm interviewing Joseph Wang, what are your questions? And I got so many. Very foolishly, I forgot to ask you them in our first time, <laughs> but I'm very glad you're back. We've got a question on 
the future of the Fed funds rate. Why has the Fed kept it as a target rate despite its well-known weaknesses? And will the shrinking FHLBs force the issue? What would the Fed move to if and when EFFR is phased out? Uh, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really detailed question. It's from DCNs, right? One of the, I think one of the best money market accounts on Twitter. Yep. So I'll give you guys some background of the effective Fed's funds rate, and then I'll tell you why it's just absolutely insane that they keep caring about it. So let's say pre-financial crises, the Fed's target rate was and is the effective Fed funds rate. And the effective Fed funds rate is basically the opportunity cost for banks. It's a market where banks can borrow overnight from another bank. So um, the Fed would control that rate as a way to control broader interest rates. So let's say a bank, this, a bank, let's say the marginal funding cost of a bank, it's like, let's say 1%, they would add a spread to that and then offer that offer loan rates to their customers. So when the Fed wanted to raise rates, they would adjust the federal funds rate uh, by adjusting quantity of reserves. Now, when the federal funds rate went higher, the opportunity cost of banks, the marginal funding cost went higher as well. So if the federal funds rate went from 1% to 2%, now banks would have to offer loans, let's say 2% plus a spread. So that affected the, the rates that end users borrowers faced, and that's how they adjusted, uh, let's say, cooled the economy down. Um, post GFC, banks don't borrow in Fed funds anymore. It's literally a dead market. So pre-GFC, Fed funds volumes would be like, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars. It'd be a very dynamic market. Your rates would, would go up and down every day, like, you know, like any like any financial market that's alive. Um, today, Fed funds, if you look at a, a chart for Fed funds rate, it's it's like a it's a it's a flatline EKG. It's the same exact rate. It's like it was set by the Soviets, right? It's like a command economy. Fed says this will be Fed funds rate. So the reason for this, well, there's two reasons for this. Um, the first reason is that banks have a lot of reserves, so they they're never really short for liquidity. There's really no reason for them to borrow from another bank. And the second reason is just as important, and that has to do with regulation. Um, post GFC, there's a set of rules called Basel III that basically encourages banks to not borrow from each other. Because during the GFC, there was basically a bank run, right? And so banks uh, banks were not, banks had a run and um, that kind of, there was some risk that banks were um, going to go under. So they, they, they were reliant on short-term liquidity that they could not roll over. And so they had to fire sell their assets to, to meet, make those payments. So there's a big push for them to not rely on short-term liquidity like the Fed funds rate, but rely on longer-term liquidity, let's say three months, six months, and so forth. So even if there was, we were in a regime where there was low reserves like we were pre-GFC, there wouldn't be a Fed funds market because banks have been encouraged or forced by regulation to move away from the overnight market. So the Fed funds market is a zombie market. It's completely dead. The only It only exists because there are some entities in the in the financial system they're called federal home loan banks that they don't get IOR so every day they have you know it's interest on reserves maybe they have a hundred billion dollars sitting at the Fed earning zero so what do they do they beg um, so they beg a bank to take it and so if a bank earns 15 basis points on IOR okay fine you know I'll give the home loan bank five basis points and I'll take 10 basis points or some other split so they have this symbiotic relationship. 
it doesn't have any economic significance and it's been dead for many years. So uh, every time you hear the Fed talk about Fed funds rate, and there's a new series off the Federal Reserve Bank of New York talking about um, how the Fed implements monetary policy, and it's all through the lens of effort. And that's really, really disheartening for me to see. And because if you if you study this, you know that it's a dead market. Um, but uh, the way the Fed works, it's almost everything is based on tenure, and it's like a university. It can only advance one retirement at a time. So you have a few people at the Fed who basically spent their entire lives building models, understanding the world through the lens of effort, and they just, you know, they can't learn anymore. So they just kind of force everyone to go along with them. So there's going to be a transition to SOFR in the coming future. And SOFR is basically the re going to be the replacement for effort. Well, it's a replacement for LIBOR today, but probably one day effort as well. So LIBOR is the, let's say, London interbank rate. It is an unsecured rate. So it's basically how much a bank can borrow for about, uh, let's say, three months is the standard term. During the great GFC, so for pre-GFC, heading into it, everyone used LIBOR as a benchmark as to what how much they should borrow, what rates they could pay. It'd be like LIBOR plus a spread. LIBOR is the reference rate that everyone uses. And LIBOR was formed by a panel of banks in London, basically submitting to a panel of what they think they could borrow at. The panel looks at this, you know, chops off the, the outliers and comes up with a rate and saying, this is the reference rate we will use for today. And everyone was okay with that. Um, during the GFC, there's some reports that, you know, the banks were manipulating LIBOR, and so LIBOR is not a not a trustworthy rate. Now, in my view, this is completely overblown because, first of all, let's say you move LIBOR, let's say LIBOR without manipulation was 6%, and let's say you move it to be 6.5%. Well, it's hard to move that much, 6.05%. Let's say you moved it five basis points. So... Some people gain, some people lose, right? It's a redistribution. If you are a if you are a lender at that time, you have to pay a bit more interest. If you're, um, you you earn a little bit more interest, and if you're a borrower, you pay you know five basis points. It's not a big deal. And the thing is, manipulation. It's not symmetric. It's not like always high, always low. So it's really hard to to see if there was any meaningful thing to it. But the official sector took advantage of that opportunity to create a new reference rate one that they felt that could not be easily manipulated from the banks. So they took the power to set reference rates out of the private sector, and they took it into the public sector. The reference rate that they created was called SOFR, and that is an overnight repo rate based on treasury collateral. So their official line is that, first of all, this is reliable because you know we're the good guys, we do this. Uh, the second, of course, is that um, it's a market-based rate. So the overnight treasury repo market is about a trillion dollars a day in transactions, very, very deep. So you get a very much a market determined rate. Whereas LIBOR, it was actually the cash transactions were actually very low post GFC. So it's true that you cannot get a very good cash rate. So simply because most people were not borrowing unsecured due to Basel III, like I mentioned earlier. So, so far it is going to be the replacement for LIBOR that's already set in stone. And moving forward, it's going to be the replacement for effort as well. You can see this from, from a couple of reasons. For, first, um, the Fed has tools now to control SOFR completely. And on the bottom, so SOFR is a repo rate over a net repo rate. At the bottom of the range, it has something called the reverse repo facility that floors SOFR. At the top of the range, it has something called a standing repo facility, which where it offers to lend a limited amounts of money 
um, at a set repo rate, a set rate to the repo market. So now it has complete control over Silver. And that is, um, that is the pre-requesty of having a reference rate. You have to be able to control it. And now they can do that. The second step, of course, is to make sure everyone uses Sulfur. And there's a full court press behind the scenes to make sure that everyone does use Sulfur. I didn't know that about that's how the Fed controls Sulfur, secured overnight financing rate. So repo is when the Federal Reserve takes reserves and uh, lends it to or, or and, and, you know buys back a lends securities from the banking system. Reverse repo is when the banking system has cash and they don't know what to do with it. And they lend money to the Fed and the Fed supplies treasuries to the banking system. So that, that that's how they have that uh, uh, band. Um, I, I wonder, what is the significance of the spread between EFFR, the effective Fed funds rate, and SOFR? Um, does, does that spread indicate anything? No, it doesn't. Um, like I mentioned before, the AEFFR effort is in a dead market. And I know this because when I was on the Fed, I had access to just everything about effort, everything, transaction-based data, met with and spoke with basically everyone who transacted in that market. It, it really has no economic significance, uh, except to the f few people, uh, few boomers in the Fed who think it's important. Unfortunately, they have a lot of influence. So what, what it really is, is that so the home loan banks who are the only lenders in the Fed funds market, they have two investment options, basically lend and repo or lend in Fed funds. When the Fed funds rate is above SOFR, then they're going to lend more in Fed funds. When the Fed funds rate is lower, they're going to lend more in repo. That's really all it is. It, it doesn't mean anything because really, and I mean this literally, there, there is almost no banks borrowing in effort because they need money. Is it p possible, Joseph, that if you take when when these boomers at the Fed, they talk about targeting EF, uh, the, the federal funds rate, if you replace that with the overnight rate with, with interest with the reverse re repo rate, would their analysis fundamentally be correct? It's just you two are using different terms and what EFA, so they are technically wrong, but they their, their framework is still intact in that what they think the effective Fed funds rate does is actually what the reverse repo does. They just don't know it. So in my view, the, the, true, the true rate that actually affects the market is the reverse repo rate. Because that's the rate that everyone can access, almost everyone can access uh, indirectly. So when the Fed raises the reverse repo rate, uh, the money market funds basically are able to receive higher return, which they can pass on to their investors. So let's say they raise the reverse repo rate to 5%. So that means that me, I can go and I can access that rate indirectly by putting money in a money market fund who will then invest in the RRP, right? It's not precise, there are transaction costs, but that's roughly how it is. Now, that's the lens that of viewing the markets, the, the Fed's impact through both the banking sector and the capital markets, because the reverse repo facility allows anyone to go and basically indirectly access that. So if you are someone, if you're an investor in corporate debt, you're going to have to price what you are willing to accept based upon what you can get in the reverse repo facility. So that's basically Fed policy moving outside of the bank, beyond just the banking sector, but also through the capital markets, the debt markets. Focusing solely on EFR, the only people who can lend in EFR are banks. So it's very much a bank-centered model of policy transmission. 
I am adjusting the opportunity cost of banks, which in turn uh, affects how much credit banks can create. And remember, banks create money. So how much credit they create has direct impact on the level of inflation. Now, if you go back in time to when the, the Fed officials were learning about the world, it was a very bank-centered world. So banks were the center of the financial system. How much money they create is, is very important. So adjusting their opportunity cost, adjust how much credit they create, which has direct economic consequences. Fast forward to today, banks are, banks are still big, but they're really not the same as they were. The capital markets are much, much bigger than they used to be. So you can think that the banks sit there and they, you know, they, they do their thing. They can't create as, as much credit as they used to because of regulations and so forth. They're much more highly regulated. But the capital markets have become a lot more important. And they don't really respond to effort because they can't really invest that effort anyway. But they can access the RRP, which is why, in my opinion, the mechanics of policy transmission really go through the RRP, at least in the overnight market. We've got a question that tails nicely with that. What do you make of Jeff Snyder's claim that the offshore currency eurodollar system is the true global money printer and that global central banks have little to no effect on what banks do and how much money they print in that system? I think that's really important to realize that, yes, there is a giant eurodollar system outside, outside of the, the boundaries of, of the U.S. So for more context on that, I would, I, I would sketch out that. So what's special about the U.S. dollar is that Dollars are used in the U.S. and they are also used abroad to a very widespread level. There are many reasons for this. One of them being, for example, global trade. Almost half of it is invoiced in dollars. So if you're a Japanese company and you're buying something from an Indian company, it's probably going to be in dollars. So that's there's a basically a vast international use case for dollars. And if you have international need for dollars, you will also have dollars created and lent in the uh, offshore community. So first principles, dollars are created by the government and also by the commercial banks. So if you have, because there's so much dollar need, there's also foreign banks outside of the US that create dollar loans, which in turn create dollar deposits. Let's say, I think according to the BIS, uh, the amount of dollars held on the balance, dollar liabilities, so dollar deposits mostly, held on the balance sheet of foreign banks is about 12 trillion. So it's a very, very large. Now, the thing about the dollar, though, regardless if it's onshore or offshore, there's only one dollar rate curve, and that is you know, largely controlled by the Fed. So let's say you are an offshore investor. Let's say you're, let's say, a Brazilian hedge fund manager, and you have dollars you want to invest. You always have the option of investing in U.S. treasuries. Anyone can buy them, right? So whether or not you invest in treasuries or, let's say, um, a local Brazilian company that issues in dollars is going to be benchmarked to treasuries. So there's only one dollar rate curve. And that's how the Fed controls um, not the dollar system, not just onshore, but offshore, right? Because they have the same rate curve. So I think it does have, so when the Fed raises rates, let's, it does have an impact on the banking system, not so much on the liability side through the Fed funds rate, but from interest on reserves. It mechanically sets the minimum asset return that banks can can, high, can accept. So, if you have a bank, you can always put cash at the Fed and earn IOR. So that's, I think, the direct impact the Fed policy has on on banks. And that same policy is also, um, also is transmitted to offshore banks. If you are Sokjin in Europe, 
yes, you are a foreign bank. Yes, you sit in Paris, but you also actually have a Fed account. So even though you are offshore, you are very much connected to the onshore world. So, and not only that, you are under basically the same regulations that U.S. banks are. Slightly different, but Basel III is a global standard. So um, there are banks offshore that create dollars and it's very large, but one, they're also um, highly influenced by Fed policy. And two, they're under more or less the same regulations as U.S. banks. So, um, I mean, it's there, but I don't, I don't think that it's particularly special or inflationary. Mm. Uh, but to what degree is the euro dollar rate as well as the long end of the tr- U.S. Treasury curve, uh, you know, outside of the control of the Federal Reserve? You know, t- tomorrow uh, the, the U.S. thirty year is going to it's going to do have some path, and that path is going to have a relatively small you know uh, amount to do with what Fed Chair Powell just said. And you know, if, if Fed, Chair, Fed Chair Powell wanted to uh, you know have the 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 thirty year bond pinned at 2%, that's possible via, via, I guess they could do it via yield curve control. But under the current measures, uh, unless the Federal Reserve gets a lot more drastic and sort of, you know, goes uh, Japanese Bank of Japan style, then the 30-year is is outside of their control, right? You know, I guess the two-year is within their control because it is a composite of rate expectations. But isn't that itself rate expectations not fully within the Federal Reserve's control, too. I mean, there's sometimes, as you talked about in 2018, when the the, the futures market, Eurodollar futures market, did not buy that the Fed was going to continue to hike, right? You're right. So the 30-year, let's say beyond 10 years, that's longer-term rates. That Fed has less control about that because it's less about the path of policy. It's has something to do with the path of policy, but you know, it's hard to know what the Fed would be doing 10, 20 years from now. A lot of it has to do with supply and demand. That has to do with just the structure of the markets. Um, let's say you have a sovereign, let's say sovereign people, sovereign um, investors need risk-free assets, they'll buy it. Maybe banks, you know, they, they'll buy it because of regulation and let's say foreign pension funds because the rates are positive and not negative. So it's, in my view, more supply and demand driven than, than Fed policy expectations. And of course, fundamentals do matter if you structurally have a view of secular inflation, maybe that impacts it as well. So it's a lot harder to say what I think than, than say, the front end and the belly. Mm, okay. And the euro dollar futures market as it stands today, I believe, is futures of the LIBOR, three-month dollars-denominated LIBOR. So will the transition from LIBOR to SOFR put more of the offshore dollar system within the control, within the remit of the Federal Reserve, since the Federal Reserve, as you mentioned earlier, can pin SOFIR between uh, a specific band? No, so your so your dollars are basically basically path of policy. So it's Fed always already kind of controls that uh, through expectations. So there's, there's not going to be a change in its level of control. It's already there. So your dollars is going, are going to transition. So LIBOR, that's going to transition into SOFR-based. So the, they've already sent a transition date, I believe it's next June. So from them, that day forward, LIBOR will equal SOFR plus, I think, 24, 25, 26 basis points, something like that. So that transition has already been set. It doesn't really change the Fed's toolkit, it just changes the reference rate. So actually, I'll take that back. So they can have more precise tuning over SOFR than they could of of LIBOR, but um, 
what I see right now that they usually have pretty good control of LIBOR. In extreme circumstances, let's say during March 2020, you can see LIBOR spiking and you can see them losing control. But listen, they brought out new tools, the FX swap. That basically immediately um, put LIBOR, put a ceiling over LIBOR. So they have these tools. Uh, they don't always use them, but I think to say so in the future, I think you're exactly right. LIBOR, SOFR will be easier to control than LIBOR. Um, in fact, they wouldn't even spike at all because of uh, the standing repo facility. So they would have more control, I agree. Okay. And to what degree do far, far dated euro dollar futures, 2023, 2026, 2031, do those futures tra trade much more like long-term treasury yields than than short-term treasury yields? So are those outside of, of the control? You know, I, I know that, and also, do you have any thoughts on the euro dollar futures curve going into inversion at a you know about middle of december maybe early december and now it has since exited uh uh, uh inversion do, do you pay you know does that mean anything to you so the euro dollar curve so your dollar futures are spot rates so um if you're looking at let's say 2025 march your dollars what you're just saying is that what is the three-month rate at that point in march of 2025 that's what you're saying. It's a spot three-month rate. Um, so that's that's not the same as, uh, let's say, um, a three-year treasury, which would be a three-year term rate. That being said, they are related because out of the spot three-month rates, you can construct uh, a swaps curve. You can construct a swap rate, which is, let's say, um, the equivalent of, buy, of borrowing three-year term in the euro-dollar market. So usually that's higher than the three-year treasury and that what we call that is a swap spread. So that, that there is, that's how the two markets are related. So going back to, to, I think what I discussed earlier, when you have, you see what the euro dollar is pricing, let's say you have its pricing in, let's say a 1% LIBOR one year from now. So that, that inversion was very slight. It was hard to say what that meant. That's what, that's what's in the price, but you don't really know the distribution. Maybe, for example, uh, that's not really the median expectation of the market. Maybe you have just some people who there who are making a tail risk bet that rates would be 1.5 and it just averages out when the median expectation is, let's say, 0.75. And so it just averages out to um, 1%, but that's not the median expectation. That's the average. You have these extremes. And so when you're just looking at that um, inversion curve, it's, it's really hard to know what drives that. It, it could just could be a difference from the median and the average. So you have somebody just betting big that the Fed will screw up and just kind of, uh, you know, buying that, buying that and betting that rates would be lower, but which may not have been representative of the median expectation. So you don't agree that a inversion of the euro dollar curve inherently indicates that something is amiss. Definitely something you want to focus on. Definitely something worth focusing on but it's not necessarily something to be alarmed about because you really don't, there are just weird technical things that could be behind it as well. Um, so like I said, it could be a, just someone that's betting on tail risk and betting bigly. And would you say that a inversion of the curve in let's say 2023 would be more worrisome than an inversion in 2029? Yeah, 2029, who knows? 2023, you're saying that the Fed is going to be, is going to screw up really badly, really quickly. <laughs> uh, our last conversation, you talked about, we were talking about stable coins, but unfortunately we ran out of time. I promised our audience that we'd get to it this time. Let's make good on our promise. 
How are you thinking about stable coins, private coins, central bank digital currencies? I know that Jerome Powell yesterday uh, made some comments saying that private private coins could compete with uh, a, you know a central bank digital currency. How are you, you sort of thinking of that? I don't really understand why there are stable coins. I think of it as just kind of an on ramp to go into the crypto world, the altcoin world, right? So it's an easy way to go um, from fiat to you know. A, a stable coin then from that stable coin you could enter in the broader crypto economy that's that's how i think of it as an on-ramp so whether or not it is meaningful to me depends largely upon whether or not people are very much interested in buying these altcoins um so whether or not there's a cbcd cbdc i think there this is ultimately a political question so if you look at people who on the fed board you can have people like governor quarles which would which would echo something that I agree with. That is, I don't see the purpose of a CBDC. I mean, why? So for me, I have money in a commercial bank. I make payments instantly. I, it's great. In fact, I even get some, uh, you know, cash back from my credit card. I send money, it's fast. And I never worry that my money in the bank would just disappear. The, the one time that I, this one time, let's say 10 years ago, I logged into my checking account and I saw somebody in Italy made a bunch of withdrawals. I called my bank and they immediately credited back to me. So I've never had problems with the, with, with, uh, with the commercial banking system and it's guaranteed by the government for up to 250,000. So for there to be a CBDC, I, I don't know the purpose. So you have people who would say that, and but you also have people like, let's say Governor Brainerd, who would talk about uh, CBDCs being great and we should have one. So I don't really know the purpose of it. Um, I suspect it has to do more with, let's say, greater political visions of how we should run our con run our country. If you recall, um, recently there was someone nominated Saul Morova to be head of the F of the uh, control of the currency, which is our banking regulator. So her vision, if you look at her papers, was to have a nationalized banking sector where everyone would just deposit money at the central bank. And Almorova and her friends who are, you know, smart and wise would just determine who gets all the loans and the money, right? Centralized command economy. Now, in order to do that, you're going to need a CBDC. So if you if that's your vision of the future, you need a CBDC. Um, but, um, you know, Almorova was not, her nomination was not successful. So maybe that plan takes a, takes a step back and maybe we have less need of a CBDC. But just from a practical standard, I, I'm not sure why we need one unless you really wanted to change the banking system. I know you guys are you know, heavy on blockchain. So maybe there are things about this that I don't understand. I, full disclosure, I, I'm not, uh, I am a no coiner. So, so there are things, so maybe I'm not understanding this properly. Got, got you. Um, um, how are you making of, it sounds like you're not too intrigued by ETH or, or USDC. How about JPMC, JP Morgan coin, an on-chain deposit token that JP Morgan is, is going to launch uh, to conduct blockchain-based intraday repo. Is this something that has a, a, you know, is, has a lot of, of a use case or is it something that's just sort of you know, there to generate a little, little news, news clip? I'm inclined to, to, uh, to think it's the latter because... <laughs> So intraday repo, obviously great, but so you basically, from what I understand that you basically onboard yourself onto this blockchain, you, you can, you can put down your treasuries and get a treasury token, and you can put down your cash and get a cash token, and you can just make this transaction on the blockchain. And 
that to me can also be done without the blockchain. It's just the, the it's possible not because of the blockchain, but because everything is on JPM's books. That's how that's it's all one database owned by JPM. Whereas if you are doing like a repo transaction with someone else, then you know there would also be someone else's books involved. You'd have to send money to uh, your clearing bank, and who would have to send money to uh, let's say some someone else's commercial bank and so forth. So there would be other books involved. I, I think that you could actually do intraday repo if just within uh, without the blockchain if everyone was on the books. So the innovation. So I think it's it's a really good application of, of crypto. I, I I don't know if that that it's something that's super meaningful, but you know, it looks like it's a promising technology, and maybe they could expand it even more. Um, so it's something that we definitely want to keep watching. Uh, Joseph, my final question for you is: I, a tweet you said you talked about uh, Clarida, Richard Clarida recently announced he's going to resign from the board of governors of the fed you said clarida was the smart market savvy guy on the fomc federal open markets committee now there is no one there who understands markets expect even more policy errors so two questions joseph number one what are the 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 lack of knowledge like people who jay powell who have worked in markets for a long time who have worked at the fed what is their sort of misunderstanding that you see question that's question number one question two is expect even more policy errors what sort of policy errors and what are their consequences yeah so on the fomc you have people with a variety of backgrounds and usually there's always someone that people consider to be the brains of the fomc i mean right now that's like clarita in the past you can think bill dudley as so both these guys, they um, they have a lot of experience with markets. So, for example, Bill Dudley used to be chief economist at Goldman Sachs. Then he headed the open markets desk and he was president of New York Fed. Uh, Clarita was at PIMCO for like over a decade. So these people understand how markets think. And this is important because there's often a gap between how, let's say, a, a big, uh, let's say, a quantitative model says and how the markets perceive. Uh, I'll give you an example. So President Williams, who's the current president of the New York Fed, is actually famous for not having a Bloomberg terminal at all. So right when he began his uh, his tenure at the Fed, and right before an FOMC meeting, he basically went out and he gave this presentation to people saying, so theoretically, when um, if you're at the zero lower bound, close to zero lower bound, and something bad happens, you have to cut rates aggressively, you know, not just, not just slightly, but aggressively suddenly. And because he gave this right before an FOMC meeting, the markets interpreted as saying that the Fed is going to do something suddenly. And there was absolute turmoil in the short-term futures rate markets. We got a lot of angry phone calls on the desk at that time. So um, what that, and you know, that was basically an accident. You know, he wasn't trying to telegraph anything. He just didn't know what his impact on markets was because he didn't understand markets at all. So the New York Fed had to issue a restriction saying, yeah, we were just, you know, just talking, man, just uh, we didn't really mean it. So sorry about that. So. He didn't have any experience in markets, and that's just an extension of, I think, what the broader FOMC is. They don't really understand how markets perceive them, understand, but usually there's someone there that can help them. Um, now there's not anymore. So um, I've seen, I've you know, heard Carlito speak many times, and his background says it all. He understands how markets are perceived and how they work. Um, usually the person on the market, there's, if there's not someone on the FOMC, on the Board of Governors that understands this, there's someone from the New York Fed who can do this, let's say president of the New York Fed, or at the very least, the summer manager. Obviously, President Williams 
does not have that background. And I don't think the current Soma manager has a very good understanding either. So there's just that, not that knowledge. So Jay Powell, listen, I like Jay Powell. I think he's great because he's a common sense guy. He's not going to be like, my, I built this giant model that's basically fake. So he has good uh, corporate finance experience, very pragmatic, knows that models are just for reference only. But I don't think he's ever had like, you know, proper financial market experience. So, um, so I can see going forward that they misunderstand what they're doing. So Bostic coming out and saying that, yeah, we're just going to do at least $100 billion in QE. I can actually see them doing that because there's no one else telling them that, you know, maybe the market might not be able to digest this. Maybe, maybe the plumbing of the system doesn't work such that all this extra QT just comes out of the RRP, you know? So there's really not a lot of expertise there that I see that could help them in, in areas like this. So that's why I think that, you know, this could, this could be a problem going forward, especially at, at a time when they're doing so much in the markets, they're raising rates and potentially doing massive QT. Okay. So you said QT, that the comment about the $100 billion, that's a potential policy mistake. Uh, what, what else stands out as a policy error, potential policy error? Uh, I, I think aggressive rate hikes could destabilize the markets. Although that's not, that's clear to me. I mean, maybe they want to crash the markets. I don't know. I mean, if you perceive markets as elevated, maybe that's part of your plan. So it, it's not always easy to tell what, um, what is a policy is fake and what is intentional. But I would think that $100 billion, at least $100 billion in QT would be a policy mistake. Because it's not that it deflates risk assets, but it potentially destabilizes the treasury market. And that's something that they never want to do. Yeah, uh, Ju Julian Brigden has a really uh, very interesting theory. He said he was talking to an uh, equity friend of his who said, I can handle, you know, I can handle 1.5% overnight rate. I can handle 1.75%. And Julian said, I know. The Fed knows you can handle it. That's why they have to go higher. <laughs> <laughs> Just really quick, because you mentioned the reverse repo facility. So there's about $1.6 trillion in that facility right now where, where the private sector is lending money to the Fed. The Fed is supplying its collateral in, in a re reverse repo transaction. Are you saying that a lot of that money would flow would flow out uh, during quantitative tightening? I'm saying that the Fed thinks it will. I believe uh, President Daly admits something similar. But that's not actually how the plumbing works because... The money in the RRP, it's owned by the money market funds, and they're not able to buy coupon treasuries. So the only way that money comes out of the RRP is either if there's more bill issuance or the people who are buying coupons funded in repo, which the money market fund investors can also invest in. So $100 billion plus QT is only possible, in my view, under one circumstance. That is the treasury issues a massive amount of bills to take money out of the RRP to repay the Fed Treasury, Fiat QE Treasury holdings. That's the only way. I was actually talking on Twitter uh, today with someone who used to work on Treasury, and he doesn't really think that, that they're that strategic, and I agree with him. So, um, so there is a way that this can come out and be okay, but I'm not sure that's the way they will take. And not because they, they want to crash the markets, but I'm not sure that they understand the structure of the financial system enough to. Uh, to do uh, to do the right thing. So it sounds like if you were the chair of the Federal Reserve, you would not rate uh, hike rates as as much as the Federal Reserve is indicating that it will, and also what the market is pricing in. You would be more dovish. So 
You can now, no, you can hiker it, but you, there are some conditions for this. You can roll out yield recurve control and then hike rates that provide stability for the debt market. There's some guy in the ECB, some senior person in the ECB actually mentioned this. So the ECB is like the Fed. We're going to hike first and then we're going to, we're going to, you know, QT. And there's this guy in the ECB, senior person, like, hey, maybe we could change that sequence. We can, we keep QE and hike rates. So I think there's some understanding that um, when you change the interest rates, you're basically destroying the value of the debt market, which could be destabilizing. So rolling out yield curve control, putting out a floor on the asset prices of, of treasuries helps do that in a stable way. Unfortunately, that suggestion was shot down very obviously by uh, Isabel Schnabel, uh, another very senior person at the ECB. I, I've heard the, the phrase behind the curve so many times. The Federal Reserve is behind the curve. They're hopelessly behind the curve. That's typically said by hawks who want the Fed to raise rates. What do they mean when they say behind the curve? Do you think that, do you agree that the Fed is behind the reserve? And if so, I mean, do you think that, yeah, the Fed is behind the curve? And it should. It shouldn't be in front of the curve. What, what are your thoughts? Rates, on, rates at zero and inflation at 6%. That's the very definition of behind the curve. That's insane, but, right? What, what, sorry, what is the curve? Are we talking the yield curve, the treasury, and what is it behind? Ah, behind the curve. I, 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 think, I take of it as just behind the curve as in they're slow to act. That's, that's all. That's, that's how I, how I oh. perceive it to be. They're just slow to act. And yeah, listen, what's the defensive end bait for inflation? What's, where's inflation at now? Where are rates? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so you think the Federal Reserve is behind the curve, and yet you think that four rate hikes would it will crash the markets. So do you, th you think in between is is Goldilocks, and it's like not too hot, not too cold? There's the markets, and there's the Fed's actual mandate, full employment and price stability. So um, it will, I think, four rate hikes will hurt the markets. Maybe in, maybe or maybe not, it will cool actual inflation, but it has to do something. There's a political aspect as well. Fed only knows one thing, you know, well, it'll work for Paul Walker. Maybe it'll work for me. So we'll hike rates. Okay. Well, uh, Joseph Wang, fedguy.com. Um, your uh, Twitter is at fedguy. At fedguy12. At fedguy12, book Central Banking 101. Very much recommend it. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much and love to have you back. You're welcome back anytime. Oh, thanks so much. I love being on this show. So happy to come back and talk to you guys again next time. Great. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, Jack.